0: This is Chapter 13 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 13. We had a fine supper of the freshest meats and fowls and vegetables, a great variety, and as great abundance. We walked about the streets some, afterward, and glanced in at shops and stores. And there was fascination in surreptitiously staring at every creature we took to be a Mormon. This was fairyland to us, to all intents and purposes, a land of enchantment, and goblins, and awful mystery. We felt a curiosity to ask every child how many mothers it had, and if it could tell them apart and we experienced a thrill every time a dwelling-house door opened and shut as we passed, disclosing a glimpse of human heads and backs and shoulders. For we so longed to have a good satisfying look at a Mormon family in all its comprehensive ampleness, disposed in the customary concentric rings of its home circle. By and by the acting governor of the territory introduced us to other Gentiles, and we spent a sociable hour with them. Gentiles are people who are not Mormons. Our fellow-passenger Bemis took care of himself, during this part of the evening, and did not make an overpowering success of it, either, for he came into our room in the hotel about eleven o'clock, full of cheerfulness, and talking loosely, disjointedly, and indiscriminately, and every now and then tugging out a ragged word by the roots that had more hiccups than syllables in it. This together with his hanging his coat on the floor on one side of a chair, and his vest on the floor on the other side, and piling his pants on the floor just in front of the same chair, and then contemplating the general result with superstitious awe, and finally pronouncing it, TOO MANY FOR HIM, and going to bed with his boots on, led us to fear that something he had eaten had not agreed with him we knew afterward that it was something he had been drinking. It was the exclusively Mormon refresher, Valley Tan. Valley Tan, or at least one form of Valley Tan, is a kind of whiskey, or first cousin to it, is of Mormon invention, and manufactured only in Utah. Tradition says it is made of imported fire and brimstone. If I remember rightly, no public drinking saloons were allowed in the kingdom by Brigham Young, and no private drinking permitted among the faithful, except they confined themselves to Valley Tan. Next day we strolled about everywhere through the broad, straight, level streets, and enjoyed the pleasant strangeness of a city of fifteen thousand inhabitants, with no loafers perceptible in it, and no visible drunkards or noisy people a limpid stream rippling and dancing through every street in place of a filthy gutter, block after block of trim dwellings, built of frame and sunburned brick, a great thriving orchard and garden behind every one of them, apparently, branches from the street streaming, winding, and sparkling among the garden beds and fruit trees, and a grand, general air of neatness, repair, thrift, and comfort around and about and over the whole and everywhere were workshops, factories, and all manner of industries, and intent faces and busy hands were to be seen wherever one looked, and in one's ears was the ceaseless clink of hammers, the buzz of trade, and the contented hum of drums and fly-wheels. The armorial crest of my own state consisted of two dissolute bears holding up the head of a dead-and-gone cask between them, and making the pertinent remark, United we stand, hick! Divided we fall. It was always too figurative for the author of this book. But the Mormon crest was easy, and it was simple, unostentatious, and fitted like a glove. It was a representation of a golden beehive, with the bees all at work. The city lies in the edge of a level plain as broad as the state of Connecticut, and crouches close down to the ground under a curving wall of mighty mountains, whose heads are hidden in the clouds, and whose shoulders bear relics of the snows of winter all the summer long. Seen from one of these dizzy heights, twelve or fifteen miles off, Great Salt Lake City is toned down and diminished till it is suggestive of a child's toy village reposing under the majestic protection of the Chinese wall. On some of those mountains, to the southwest, it had been raining every day for two weeks, but not a drop had fallen in the city, and on hot days in late spring and early autumn the citizens could quit fanning and growling and go out and cool off by looking at the luxury of a glorious snowstorm going on in the mountains. They could enjoy it at a distance in those seasons every day, though no snow would fall in their streets or anywhere near them. Salt Lake City was healthy, an extremely healthy city. They declared there was only one physician in the place, and he was arrested every week regularly, and held to answer under the vagrant act for having no visible means of support. They always give you a good substantial article of truth in Salt Lake, and good measure and good weight, too. Very often, if you wished to weigh one of their airiest little commonplace statements, you would want the hay scales. We desired to visit the famous Inland Sea, the American Dead Sea, the great Salt Lake, seventeen miles, horseback, from the city. For we had dreamed about it, and thought about it, and talked about it, and yearned to see it all the first part of our trip. But now, when it was only arm's length away, it had suddenly lost nearly every bit of its interest, and so we put it off, in a sort of general way, till next day, and that was the last we ever thought of it. We dined with some hospitable gentiles, and visited the foundation of the prodigious temple, and talked long with that shrewd Connecticut Yankee, Heber C. Kimball, since deceased, a saint of high degree and a mighty man of commerce. We saw the Tithing House and the Lion House, and I do not know or remember how many more church and government buildings of various kinds and curious names. We flitted hither and thither, and enjoyed every hour, and picked up a great deal of useful information and entertaining nonsense, and went to bed at night satisfied. The second day we made the acquaintance of Mr. Street, since deceased, and put on white shirts and went and paid a state visit to the King. He seemed a quiet, kindly easy-mannered, dignified, self-possessed old gentleman of fifty-five or sixty, and had a gentle craft in his eye that probably belonged there. He was very simply dressed, and was just taking off a straw hat as we entered. He talked about Utah, and the Indians, and Nevada, and general American matters and questions, with our secretary, and certain government officials who came with us. But he never paid any attention to me, notwithstanding I made several attempts to draw him out on federal politics and his high-handed attitude toward Congress. I thought some of the things I said were rather fine, but He merely looked around at me, at distant intervals, something as I have seen a benignant old cat look around to see which kitten was meddling with her tail. By and by I subsided into an indignant silence, and so sat until the end, hot and flushed, and execrating him in my heart for an ignorant savage. But he was calm. His conversation with those gentlemen flowed on as sweetly and peacefully and musically as any summer brook. When the audience was ended, and we were retiring from the Presence, he put his hand on my head, beamed down on me in an admiring way, and said to my brother—'Ah, your child, I presume? Boy or girl?' End of CHAPTER Thirteen.